This message by Bill Kittrell was recorded during a Sunday celebration service for Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. Bill serves as a senior pastor on staff at Cornerstone Church. Okay, good morning, everybody. Thank you so much for being here. Please uh, turn in your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 16. If you're here this morning and you don't have a copy of the scriptures, if you'll raise your hand, our ushers will bring you a Bible, and that'll be yours to keep, and you can turn with us to 1 Samuel 16. If you need a Bible, leave your hand up so they can get to you, and turn to 1 Samuel 16. We're in a, a series on First and Second Samuel this fall, and this morning we're going to be introduced to the primary character in the story, David. 1 Samuel 16, begin reading with me in verse 1, we'll read down through verse 13. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. The Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. And invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him, trembling, and said, Do you come peaceably? And he said, Peaceably. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. And then Jesse made Shammah pass by, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. And Samuel said to Jesse, Are all your sons here? And he said, There remains yet the youngest but behold, he, he's keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, 
send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. And he sent and brought him in, and now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. And Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. This is God's holy, inspired, inerrant word. And it's a gift to us to help us this morning as I, I think we focus on seeking a divine perspective, God's perspective, a way of seeing that we don't normally see. Appearance of things doesn't always reveal reality. The way things seem to us can be very different from the way they really are. Sometimes the unimpressive can turn out to be far better than we ever expected. My, my 10-year-old granddaughter recently told me in her, I'm a 10-year-old and possess all knowledge of the universe voice, usually beginning with actually, The other day, she, with that voice, told me about the FedEx logo, specifically about the arrow in the FedEx logo. I, I didn't know about the arrow in the FedEx logo. So as she was talking to me about it in her kind of way and explaining me to me about it, I... I was paying attention, and she was communicating. I was virtually the only person on the planet that didn't know about this, and she had known about it pretty much since the day of her birth. <laughs> I was really surprised because, of course, I'd seen this logo countless times before, long before she was born, but I'd never seen the arrow. So I started looking at the FedEx logo, looking for the arrow, and I couldn't see it. <laughs> I looked a number of times for this arrow my granddaughter had told me about. I couldn't find it, and I sure wasn't going to go back to her and say, could you help me find the arrow? And <laughs> That was not going to happen. So I, I talked to a few people, confessed, I, I can't see the arrow. But after weeks of trying, one day, I don't know what happened, the light went off, and I saw it. And now I always see it, because once you see it, you always see it. And I wonder at how I ever missed, missed it. I think we have a picture of it. You see the arrow? Hey, this is a gift for those of you who don't know about the little arrow between the E and the X. I can see it so clearly now. All right, you can... Nobody... Everybody knew about the arrow but me. They're not interested in the picture. So you can take that off, and I never want to see that again. <laughs> Here's the point. The Lord wants us to, in a sense, see the arrow today. He wants us to see more than we see with our physical eyes. During the days of Samuel, 
God was at work. Today, God is at work. He is accomplishing sovereign purposes all around us in history, in your life, in our church. But so often we don't see it. It's like the arrow is there, but we just don't perceive it. It's clear. It's obvious. There's evidence of grace. The Holy Spirit is at work. It's as plain as that FedEx arrow. But our perspective, our way of seeing just isn't the way God sees and we miss it. If we, if we get his perspective, if we seek a divine perspective and, and we begin to see the way he sees, it'll change your life. We will look at things different. We will perceive he's at work. We will perceive sovereign purposes. We may have difficult people in our life, and it'll change the way we relate to them. If you're suffering, it will change your attitude so you'll be able to give thanks when you, when you suffer. You'll learn that often we're so wrong because of our limitations and the way we see things. The truth is that history... Our lives are not out of control. God is in control. He is actively involved in our lives and in history. The King David we're being introduced to today, who we are going to love, wrote a beautiful psalm where he makes this truth explicit. Psalm 103, verse 19, The Lord has established His throne in the heavens and his sovereignty or his kingdom rules over all that's the truth david wrote a poem about it because he knew it was true and once you once you get this truth you'll have a divine perspective and it'll change your life i have a two-point message today first point is electing power from these Verse 13 verses, and the second point is spiritual power from the last section of chapter 16, and we'll, we'll read that when we get to that point. Number one, electing power. If you remember, the nation of Israel asked for a king. They asked Samuel for a king. They said they wanted to be like the other nations. They wanted an impressive, powerful, efficient leader. So God gave them the king they ask for. And so as you read through 1 Samuel, the writer, the narrator is repeatedly making this point. Saul, who we saw last week, was the king who failed. Saul was the king they had chosen for themselves. 1 Samuel 12, behold, the king whom you have chosen for whom you have asked, the Lord has set a king over you. The problem was that the people of Israel were God's people. King Saul could win battles. He could rally the nation. He was a very charismatic leader. People would follow him. He could give them political stability. But he disobeyed the Lord. And he's, he's the king who failed because he disobeyed the Lord. He failed because of his disobedience. You can't lead the people of God 
and disobey God. So here in verse 1, the Lord said to Samuel, How long are you going to grieve over Saul since I've rejected him from being king? We had read in the last chapter that, that Samuel was grieved. He was profoundly affected by Saul's failure. He's one of the greatest prophets of the Old Testament, but he was discouraged. We can assume that he loved Saul. He had developed an affection for Saul. He would have to know that, that Saul's life was going downhill. It was going to get ugly. And that would be sad to him. But even more than that, he would be burdened for the people of God because he knew that Israel would suffer because of Saul's failure. He knew that, that Saul's failure was a, was a failure of faithfulness to the Lord, the Lord who had been so faithful to his people he had told, Samuel told the people of God from the, from the beginning, fear the Lord, serve him faithfully with all your heart. Consider what great things he's done for you. That was his passion. That was his burden. He's a true, true prophet. And now he's weeping. He's discouraged. And, the, and if you're a reader of 1 Samuel, you should be feeling this. You should be grieved. And I, I think we, we should pause a minute and say, you know, do we, do we recognize now this side of the cross, the church is the people of God? And do we grieve when the church fails? Do we rejoice when the church brings glory to God, when the manifold wisdom of God is made known through the church? We should. But there came a point here in verse 1, where the Lord corrects Samuel and reproves him. How long are you going to grieve for, for Saul's failure? Because God is at work doing something better. Samuel was overly grieved. He was too grieved. He, he was so grieved he couldn't perceive God's good purposes, even at that moment. Even when he says, I've rejected him from being king over Israel, Good things are in the works. Better things are in the works. And Samuel needs to recognize, he needs to see, he needs to have a divine perspective that this rejection of Saul, it's the judgment of God. And this judgment is right and good. And it's time to stop grieving and look now for what God is, is going to do. Second part of verse 1, fill your horn with oil and go. You've got a mission. You've got something you're going to do. I'm going to send you to Bethlehem, to Jesse. For I have provided for myself a king among his sons. Literally, I have seen among Jesse's sons for myself a king. This is God's plan. This is God's electing purpose, His power. He is providing now for Himself a king. This king's going to be different. The Lord says this king is for him. Remember chapter 13, the Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded that he's going to be the king. 
And then chapter 15, the Lord has Samuel said to Saul, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. The Lord has seen this one among the sons of Jesse in Bethlehem. Verse 2, Samuel asked the Lord, how can I go if Saul hears about it? He's going to kill me. Well, there is that, right? Because kings don't like to be replaced. <laughs> so Samuel's aware if he hears what I'm about, Samuel actually had to go through the town where Saul was on his way to Bethlehem. And he knows if Saul hears about this, he does have an army. And he'll kill him. Notice the Lord isn't worried. Amazingly, the Lord isn't worried. He doesn't share Samuel's fears. You know why that is? Because he has set his throne in the heavens and his kingdom, his sovereignty, rules over all. He has a plan. He has a purpose. Even in the midst of a moment like this, where it would seem, you know, Samuel is grieving and now he has to go through Saul's town to anoint another king. It's a good time to be worried if you're me, if you're Samuel, to be fearful, but the Lord isn't worried. It has been a difficult week for our country with this confirmation process for the Supreme Court Justice. You may be opposed, you may be supportive, but we all can be comforted that God's in control in the midst of this messy, ugly, polarizing process. God is at work in our nation. God is at work in our lives. He's at work in our church. And all things work together for good for His people. All things work together for his glory. But it's, it's very difficult to see this at times like this week. And that's where we want to seek a divine perspective. That's what Samuel needed. The Lord says, take a heifer, say, I've come to sacrifice, invite Jesse. The Lord responds to Samuel's fears by just reiterating his command. The good news is Samuel, unlike Saul, trusted God and obeyed. And he goes to Bethlehem. You ever heard of Bethlehem? This is, this is a remarkable moment in redemptive history. But there's a conflict between the prophet and the king, and not only is the prophet afraid, the village is afraid. And so the town leaders, they don't want to be drawn into this, this conflict that they see what is going on. And so Samuel has to comfort them, and now we get this front row seat to watch kind of, Israel, you've got talent as we parade these people before Samuel. Yeah, that was a little more funny than you. Than 
Verse 6, when they came, he looked on the first son, Eliab, and thought, that's the man. This was an impressive young man. He was tall. He was good-looking. And Samuel looked at Eliab in a certain way. He, he looked at his outward appearance, and it was impressive. And, and he, this has got to be the Lord's anointed. He was tall. He was good-looking. If you're reading 1 Samuel, it reminds you of someone else, doesn't it? It reminds you of Saul. Kish had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the other people. That was Saul, the failure, the king who failed. And now, here's Samuel the prophet. And the first thing he does is he looks at Eliab and says, you've got to be the one because you're tall and handsome. It just shows you how given even God's true prophets are to evaluate and see things based on outward appearance. So, again, let's pause and think about this. It, it just has a tremendous effect on us. Impressions, outward appearance. And this text is screaming, don't look on the outward appearance of people. Don't look on the outward appearance of things. If you want to see the way God sees. How many times have people been attracted to someone's outward appearance or their attributes and it have a devastating effect on their lives. This is a warning. It's a warning to parents. It's a warning to single men and single women. It's, it's a warning to businessmen looking for a partner, etc., etc., etc. It's a warning. We look at, we are influenced by the outward appearance. Verse 7, but the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees, not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord, he looks on the heart. And this is why his perspective is often so different than ours. He isn't limited in his perspective. We are limited. God is not deceived by outward appearances. He sees the heart. We are deceived often, aren't we? We misjudge people because we don't know their heart. We get misjudged because people don't know our hearts. We, got, we have to ask questions. When you, when you did that, it made me wonder, do you really care? Are you angry at me? But I don't know your heart. Why did you do that? We, we should never judge others' motives because we, we don't know their heart. But God does. Our perspectives are often different because of our limitations. We have limited experience. 
We have limited knowledge. We have limited understanding. We make mistakes. We're often wrong. We can't tell the meaning of events, of the significance of things. And yet we often just have confidence in our perspective. The truth is none of us, because of these limitations, we're human, we're limited, we're finite, we're mortal. We, we just don't know enough to be sure. But God isn't limited. His perspective is not just another, another perspective. It's the right perspective. He's really there. He's the creator of all things. He's the Lord of all history. Any understanding of the world goes through him. It has to take into account his power, his purpose, or it's going to be mistaken. Our problem is we can't see the effects of God's power. We can't see his purposes with our physical eyes. It's why his perspective is so often different from ours. He has the true perspective. It is what is based on his purpose, his will. When you see with that divine perspective, everything looks different. In this case, in 1 Samuel 16, he is looking at these sons of Jesse from the perspective of his redemptive purposes. And Eliab was tall and good-looking, but he was not the one that God had chosen. He has seen for myself a king among Jesse's sons, and that's not him. He is seeking a man after his own heart, that's not him. Eliab wasn't the man God chose. God had set his heart on a different man. So he saw Eliab differently than Samuel saw him. Eliab was not the man God had chosen by his grace. God's perspective is determined by his gracious and sovereign purposes. He doesn't look at how tall a person is. He doesn't look at their looks. He doesn't even look at how well they, they perform religious duties. His perspective isn't determined by the qualities of the man. Later we'll study in 2 Samuel, we'll, we'll hear David capture this well in a prayer he prays to the Lord when he has not been the king that failed, but he's been the king that succeeded. He says this in his prayer, because, Lord, of your promise and according to your own heart, you have brought about all this greatness to make your servant know it. That's God's electing power. The new king would be one that God had sought out according to his own purposes. And this is how the Lord sees. He sees with his heart, so to speak. He sees according to his plans, his purposes. Verse 8, Jesse 
calls Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. He said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Verse 9, Jesse made Shammah pass by. He said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse makes seven of his sons pass before Samuel. The Lord hasn't chosen these. Samuel's beginning to see with the divine perspective. None of these sons are the ones that the Lord has chosen. This is God's electing power on display in the Old Testament. His good purposes come from His perfect will, His sovereign will. He did not choose these sons of Jesse. The Bible teaches He chose Israel to be His people, David to be His king, Jerusalem to be His city. He has set His throne in the heavens, and His kingdom, His sovereignty rules over all, and His purposes will be fulfilled in Christ. On the Mount of Transfiguration, the Lord spoke and said, This is my son. This is the greater son of David. My chosen one. Listen to him. And if you're a Christian, it's because you've been chosen in Christ through his electing power. Colossians 3, believers are God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. First Thessalonians, Paul says to that church, we know brothers loved by God. He has chosen you. And of course, Peter, 1 Peter 2, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That biblical doctrine of election gives us an assurance when our performance is flaky. It gives us humility when we have a good day. His love for us depends solely on His gracious purposes for us in Christ. His love is certain. There's no room for pride or, or boasting. His love doesn't depend on our performance. We are in Christ because of sovereign grace alone because of His electing power. And this, it has deep roots. This doctrine of election has deep roots in the Old Testament. What's great about David, and he is great. Oh, he is great. We are going to have a lot of fun with David. What's great about him is God chose him. Don't forget this moment. God chose him. It, it's so interesting. You know, when Samuel says in verse 11, are all your sons here? I mean, it's, it's like, well, yeah. There is the youngest, but keeping the sheep. There is one more son, but he's the smallest, the boy, the kid. You're not going to bring him before the true prophet Samuel and it insults Samuel's intelligence. There was no one that thought this was the man. No one. 
except for Samuel, who's beginning to see the way the Lord sees. And he says, you go get that kid. And we're not sitting down. It's kind of like our Sunday services. You know, you're not sitting down until he's here. Even his own dad, David's own father, gave him no chance to be this anointed king. Thank God for Samuel. Imagine if we had missed David. He sent, he brought him in, verse 12. Now he was ruddy. He was red. He had God's special gift, red hair. Amen. He's a cute kid. No one saw him as a potential king. But the Lord did. It, it just, all of this highlights his purpose, his choice. And then Samuel took the horn of oil, anointed him in the midst of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord rushed on him. And that leads us to point number two, spiritual power. Verse 14, the, the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. As soon as the spirit rushed on David, the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. This, this is about, we want to see here, the empowering presence of the spirit for a person's role, the role of king in this case. 1 Samuel 16 is about how the spirit of God works in someone to equip them for a role. The Spirit is God Himself. And, and by His Spirit, God accomplishes His purposes in history and for His people. Through His Spirit, He sustains His leaders. He equips these leaders we're reading about. They are empowered by the Spirit. The, the Spirit had rushed on Saul earlier in 1 Samuel. So we see him being effective, but it came from outside of himself. Power from God rushed on him from elsewhere. You may remember, he prophesied among the prophets by the Spirit of God. He was equipped to be king, whatever circumstance he found himself, by the Spirit. The Spirit enabled him to do what was needed to be done as king. And now Samuel anointed David in Bethlehem as the one chosen by God to be a different kind of king from Saul. Saul is experiencing the judgment of God. As you go on in 1 Samuel, you're going to see Saul, he's going to try to keep ruling Israel as king without this empowering presence. It's pitiful. It's futile. This role requires God's Spirit. It requires spiritual power. Saul failed. The Spirit rushes on David, and there doesn't appear to be any observable effect. If we were just looking on with our eyes, we wouldn't have said, oh, the powerful Spirit of God just rushed on David. But this coming of the Spirit on David was the most important thing that happened that day in Bethlehem. And we learn that a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented Saul. 
And we know God never does evil. We, we, we know from Scripture He's holy, He's righteous, He's good, He never does evil. So what is meant by a harmful spirit from the Lord torments Saul? The result is going to be misery, it's going to be harm to Saul, it's going to be distress. And it came from the Lord. It was a consequence of Saul being rejected by the Lord. This is the judgment of God. Sometimes we find that God's sins allows evil agents into history, and they accomplish His good purposes, His righteous purposes. The greatest example, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. The only innocent man. As the apostles prayed in Acts 4, they said, For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined. To take place. The departure of the Spirit and the sending of this harmful spirit underlines the fact that God had rejected Saul this day. The Lord abandoned Saul because he abandoned the Lord. Look with me in verse 16. Let our Lord now command your servants who are before you. So Saul is being troubled by the Spirit to seek out a man who is skillful in playing the lyre, and when the harmful spirit from God is upon you, he'll play it, and you will be well. So Saul said to his servants, Provide for me a man who can play well, and bring him to me. And one of the young men answered, Behold, I've seen a son of Jesse the Bethlehemite, who is skillful in playing, a man of valor, a man of war, prudent speech, a man of good presence. And most importantly, and we'll hear this again and again, the Lord is with him. David was already known, even as a kid, as a skilled musician. It's, it's an extraordinary description of this kid. <laughs> He's going to display musical talent and verbal skill that we're reading about today. It's all about, verse 18, the Lord is with him. It, it's a continual theme. Verse 21 says, David came to Saul, entered his service, and Saul loved him greatly. He became his armor bearer. Hopefully you see the irony here. He brings the one that's about to replace him into his service. He summons the neighbor that is better than him. The chosen king is serving the rejected king. And Saul loved him. God has set his throne in the heavens. And his sovereignty rules over all. So crazy things like this happen. Verse 22, he, he, he sends to Jesse and said, Let him remain in my service. He's found favor in my sight. And then verse 23, Whenever the harmful spirit from God was upon Saul, David took the lyre and played it with his hand. So Saul was refreshed 
and was well, and the harmful spirit departed from him. It's all in God's sovereign hand. David will later be called the sweet psalmist of Israel. He wrote poems, he wrote psalms, he established the temple musicians. He, he was very gifted as a musician. He'd make Bob Coffin look pitiful. He had spiritual gifts for the role he was to play in God's purposes. He had spiritual power. He was chosen by the grace of God, and he was equipped by the Spirit of God for the role he was to play, just like you. It's true for every believer. Every man and woman who is a believer in this room has a role to play in God's purposes. One of our great desires as a pastoral team is to help you discover what that role is and to equip you for the work of ministry. And when you find that role, you will need the Spirit to rush on you. And you will need spiritual gifts and you will need spiritual fruit. And the Lord will give that to you because of the gospel. It's good to be humble, but it's not good to be falsely humble. You are promised everything you need from God who has chosen you and has a purpose for you. So trust Him. If you're a husband, if you're a father, if you're a single woman, if you're a teenager, and you're a believer, trust Him. David played worship music. We want to we seek a divine perspective. The truth is, found in this hymn, Psalm 135, you can turn over there. Psalm 135, verse 4. The truth we're talking about is captured in this hymn. We're going to conclude by returning to singing. When David would go into Saul, he would play beautiful music, but it wasn't just beautiful music, it was worship music. It was spiritual music. It was about God. It was God-exalting. We want to seek a divine perspective. We want to see, no matter what your situation is, no matter what your circumstances this morning, we want to see it from, from God's perspective. You may be looking at your kids and their outward appearance, but God is looking at the heart. We want to see life from His perspective, from His purposes. And when we do, we won't panic. We won't be afraid. Because He's not afraid. He has a good plan for you. It's for your good and it's for His glory. And this is what the hymn says. Psalm 135, verse 4, The Lord has chosen Jacob for himself. If you're a believer, he has chosen you for himself. Israel as his own possession. You as his own possession. And the hymn writer says, For I know 
that the Lord is great. Don't miss that. I'm not great, but He is great. I know that the Lord is great and that our Lord is above all gods. His throne is set in the heavens. Sovereignty rules over all. He's above all gods. Whatever the Lord pleases, He does in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all deeps. This is a hymn that calls God's people to praise Him for His majestic power. He is in control. We're reading about Bethlehem. We're reading about David. A thousand years after Samuel anointed David, there were shepherds keeping watch over their flock by night near Bethlehem, and they saw the baby Jesus from God's perspective. And Luke tells us, the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David, Bethlehem, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. He is the chosen one. And we are saved by faith. Faith in Him. And by faith, we are united to Him. He's a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And when the shepherds saw that little baby in that very unimpressive setting, They had God's perspective. This is Christ, the chosen one. Everything we're reading about in 1 Samuel 16 is pointing to that day. Bethlehem. It reminds us that by grace we've been saved through faith in this one that controls all history, including yours. Lord, thank you. Thank you for revealing to us afresh from your word who you are. The Lord is great. Lord, give us faith this morning. Give us eyes to see things that we can't see with our own physical eyes, with our own understanding, with our own knowledge. This morning, Lord, let the Spirit of God rush on us as we sing these songs. And strengthen us in you, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a message given by Bill Kittrell during a Sunday celebration service at Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. To find out more about Cornerstone Church of Knoxville, visit us at www.cornerstonechurchofknoxville.com or call our church office at 865-694-4356. We'd love to have you join us in our mission to treasure, grow in, and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ.